We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I know it says Deuteronomy chapter 4 in your bulletin, but uh, when I started preparing, there was just uh, too much to skip over from where we left off last week. Now, we are currently in the midst of a sermon series in which we are looking at the book of Deuteronomy. We said that Deuteronomy is all about relationship, but a specific kind of relationship, a covenant relationship in which the living God makes a covenant and pledges and promises himself to his people. Now, we said you can summarize Deuteronomy this way, that God was faithful and gracious in the past. God will be faithful and gracious in the present and God will be faithful and gracious in the future. Now, interestingly, Deuteronomy is structured like the treaties of the ancient Middle East. And God's people understood that he was their true king. In fact, he is the king above all kings and that they were his favored people because he had selected them and chosen them at his own. And he had made this treaty, this covenant agreement with them. So the first five verses of Deuteronomy just kind of contain the intro in which God is identified. The second section, which we started to look at last week, we're going to look at today from verse six on through chapter four, verse 49, is kind of the first scene of the first act of this treaty. And in this section, God reminds his people of the way he's dealt with them in the past, delivering them out of Egypt. He's pointing to the fact that he's been gracious in providing and protecting and guiding his people. The implication is that if they obey They'll be blessed and this relationship will continue. If they disobey, then they will experience curses and the judgment of God. So up to this point in the story of the Bible, God has made a promise, this covenant to Abraham, to give him what we call the promised land or the land of Canaan. But as the people of God got closer to this particular promised land that God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had this plan. Okay, well, we think it's a good idea to send some scouts ahead and to look and to see what might happen lie in front of us. So they send out 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in verse 10, this is what we read. The spies said the people were giants and the cities were fortified. And so down in verse 29, God says to his people in response of this bad report, then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. For the Lord your God, verse 30, who goes before you will himself fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and the cloud by day to show you what way you should go. So the people send out these spies. The spies come back. Ten of them say, okay, guys, it's bad. They're giants and they're fortified cities with walls to the sky. The other two spies come back and they don't deny those reports. They never say, oh, guys, you're just exaggerating. They really aren't that big and the cities really aren't that fortified. No. They see the exact same thing that lies ahead, but they just choose to look to God and the promises that he's made. But because the people are rallied around these bad reports, they refuse to move ahead in faith. 
They refuse to obey God even though they had been given every reason to trust him. God had told them, I'm the one who delivered you from Egypt. I'm the one who fights for you. I'm the one who provides for you. I'm the one who goes in front of you and shows the place to pitch your tents. Even though they had every reason to trust God, because they were afraid, they disobeyed. Because they disobeyed, they were disqualified from entering into the promised land. So Moses confronts the people of God. In verse 26, you, you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and you said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and they are fortified into heaven. Then the Lord speaks to them and says, don't be afraid. And yet they are. And they refuse to move forward in obedience. And so then you skip down to verse 41 and you see obedience, blessing, disobedience, and now you see the curse. Then you answered me. We have sinned against the Lord. And so Moses is confronting the people. And in their... Their, their uh, rebuke, they acknowledge that they disobey God, but then they come up with a plan. We didn't do what God said. Now we'll go in and take the land. And so we ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war, and you thought it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. And so I spoke to you, but you would not listen. And you rebelled against the command of the Lord and you presumptuously went up into the hill country and the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and they chased you as bees do and they beat you down. And then you returned and you wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So we see the dynamics of this covenant relationship. God says, trust me, I've given you this land, go in and, and just take it. But they're afraid. So they disobey. And so then God confronts them. And he says, you don't want to go into the land? All right, then I won't let you go in the land. Everyone from this generation will wander in the wilderness, and it's your children who will go in and experience the promises of God. But then they think, well, okay, we made a big mistake. All right? It's always good to acknowledge when you've made a mistake. But the problem is they compound that by making another mistake. Oh, we'll just go up and fight. And what they didn't realize is that God commanded them. Do not go up because I'm no longer in your midst. Because, see, that's the secret. The secret to their success was that God was with them and that God would fight for them. He tells them to don't go. And it ends exactly the way you would imagine. Moses says that the Amorites came out and they chased them like bees. So the people are stuck. They're in the wilderness. They can't enter into the promised land which had been promised to their forefathers. Everyone except for Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb, even though they saw the exact same obstacles in front of them, the giants and the fortified cities, they were like, all right, if you want us to go, we trust you. We don't know exactly how you're going to do it, but we believe you when you say that you'll fight for us. They're kind of like the story I heard of this 79-year-old Florida woman. She got an invitation to join the United States Marines. So according to the Week magazine, Ms. Walker, 79 years old, received a priority letter overnight from the U.S. Marines that said this. Do you think you have what it takes to be a Marine? Are you prepared for one of the most demanding challenges you will ever face? She said that she wasn't sure that she was, but that she still planned to report to the local recruiting office anyhow. 
so that she could say, here I am, where do you want me to go? That's what Joshua and Caleb do. They get this invitation to go in, and, and, then, and, and they just say, you know what? All right, God, that's where you're calling us to go. We're going to follow you. Where do you want us to be? And so they are the only two of that group who get to go in and experience the promised land. So here is Moses speaking to a generation that's about to go into the promised land. And they're facing the exact same thing their parents were. The giants didn't just get up and leave during the wilderness wandering. They didn't abandon their cities and move on to greener pastures. They're still there. And to this next generation, they've heard the stories of their parents. And now they have to go and do what their parents were too afraid to do. The Anakim still live in these same fortified cities. And God has not changed. He still expects his covenant people to trust and to rely on him. To depend on him, to fight on their behalf, and to deliver their enemies into their hands. So Moses is telling the people the temptation to focus on what lies ahead is going to be there. And so he encourages them not to look at the giants, not to look at the fortified cities, but to look to the Lord who promises himself to his people. The God who makes a covenant, the God who keeps a covenant. Where their parents had seen giants and fortified cities and said, we can't. The children look and see giants and fortified cities and they say, you can. So the people move ahead in faith and obedience. But think about it. It wasn't easy. And there was a lot for them to be afraid of and to be terrified about. But they trusted God and they refused to let fear keep them from moving forward in obedience. See, fear is the opposite of faith. And so when you're struck with fear and anxiety and God's inviting you to trust him and to move out in obedience, you do so with courage. No one's saying that it's not scary at times. No one's saying that a life of following Jesus is going to be a life of, of comfort and convenience. So sometimes it's scary and terrifying, but yet God still calls us to faith-filled obedience, to trust him to provide and to meet our needs. What's interesting is that when you see the first step in obedience allows God to work in our hearts so that we can know him more deeply and trust in his power. You see that in a very powerful way in the book of Joshua. As the people enter into the promised land, the first city they come to is the city of Jericho. And what's interesting is that God really wants to drive home this point that it's not about how well they fight. That it's not about how well they strategize and move on the battlefield. That it's about his power and his might and his glory. So what does he do? First, in Joshua chapter 6, he declares to the people of God, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. And then he instructs them to attack. But he doesn't instruct them to attack the way you and I might think. He doesn't say gather up into groups of 10 and 20 and, and the cover of night, sneak over the walls and start stabbing people with swords and knives. No, he says, this is what I want you to do. Probably the worst military strategy I've ever heard of. I want you to walk around the walls. I want you to march around the walls for seven days. And on the last day, I want you to march around the wall for seven times. Can you imagine how strange that would be? Like, I have no military experience. I've played paintball a couple of times. I was really bad at it. But never in my wildest dreams would I have thought, hey, we're just going to walk around the perimeter and then just see what happens. But that's exactly what God says. Why? Because he wants them to see faith. He wants them in faith to see that it's about him and not about them. 
He wants them to see that even though the circumstance were impossible, they'd already given the victory into their hands. He was giving them a chance to put faith in what they knew about God in a very real and tangible kind of way. He was inviting them to walk literally in obedience, trusting that God would be good and do what he says. And sure enough, what do we see? That God makes a promise and God keeps a promise. They did exactly what God instructed. They march around the walls for seven days. And the last day they march around the sea seven times. The priests sound the trumpet. Everyone shouted and the walls fell down. What's interesting is they had done absolutely nothing to the walls of Jericho. Nothing that would cause the walls of this fortified city to fall down. They simply obeyed God and he was the one that worked on behalf of his people. He's the one who actually called the wall to fall. So you and I are a lot like the Israelites. God is inviting us into a life of faith, obedience, dependence, trust, and reliance, even when it doesn't make sense. You and I, we don't receive the benefits of God's favor by human effort. The gospel comes to us by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not anything that we do. God is wise. God is faithful. And he does what he says he will do, even when you and I can't understand it. So the people move forward to the promised land. And we get this encounter in chapter 2, verse 26, if you want to turn there and look with me. This is Sion, the king of Heshbon. And this is what we read in verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemouth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will only go by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor the left. And you shall sell me food for money that I may eat. Give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. So you have to imagine there's this king and all of a sudden, all of a sudden he sees this great multitude of people starting to march through his territory. And so God says, I'm going to send my messengers ahead and I'm going to request for safe travel through your territory. I'm going to ask that you would not give us anything except what we buy with our money. No food, no water, except what we pay for. We only either turn to the left or the right. So he's saying to them, you have nothing to fear. We're just going to go through here and we're asking that you would let us pass safely. It's fascinating because we know that God's already promised his people this land. He's already told them that this will be a land that they will possess. So the interesting thing to me is this request for peace. This envoy that's sent ahead for peaceful travel through the area. Why does God do this? Why is God setting the situation up like this so that they send a message requesting for peace? I think he's showing us that he's gracious, but he's also just. He's giving Sion and the king and his people a chance to be spared. He's extending to them the same offer that was made to the people of Esau, Moab, and Ammon. He's providing a way for them not to go into battle and to be defeated by the nation of Israel. But if you skip down to verse 30, this is what we read. But he would not let us pass by. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. And then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle. 
And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. This is a matter of justice. This is a matter of God's character and his nature. If Zion would have allowed the people of Israel to pass, then he and all of his people would have been spared. Moses and the Israelites are not on the offensive here, but they react to the king and to his warriors coming out to battle against them. So what do they do? They simply defend themselves and fight back, and they destroy Sion and his people. But he goes on in chapter 3 to tell us about another king, Og, in chapter 3. Now, this instance is different in that there really seems to be no request for peaceful travel through the area. We read in both instances, though, that the complete destruction of all people, men, women, children, combatants, and non-combatants alike, are destroyed. And that's difficult for us to talk about. That's difficult for us to think that God would command the nation of Israel to simply destroy entire cities, nations, communities, people groups. Immediately we think of things like ethnic cleansing and genocide. And it raises all kinds of objections for us and for other people. So what's really happening in the conquest as the people of Israel move into the promised land? Well, a couple of different ways to approach this. Philosopher Paul Copen, he believes that this language is consistent with ancient Near Eastern military narrative. And what he's arguing is that God is not commanding the people of God to commit uh, genocide or ethnic cleansing, but what's being written here is hyperbole. It's exaggeration for the sake of emphasis, especially as it relates to military conquest. Now, this practice was evident through numerous battle reports at that time, not only of the nation of Israel, but of other nations at that particular time. And so he says this is kind of conventional warfare speech or rhetoric. He says this was common in many other ancient Near Eastern military accounts in the first and the second millennia B.C. So when you read things like utterly destroy or put to death the men and women, the children and infants, or language like obliterate everything, these are stereotypical languages or idioms that would have been used to refer to military conquest. And what it just meant was the nation of Israel was victorious and they defeated the opposition. Think of this the way. If you have a favorite football team or a favorite baseball team or a favorite basketball team and they win a game, you might say something like this. They destroyed their opponents. They slaughtered them and they won maybe, let's say, by football, 14 points. But it was a dominating defeat. And so you say things like they overwhelmed them. And so he's arguing that these were this is the case on these particular passages. He says women and children probably weren't targets, especially since the attacks were always directed at small military outposts that usually only housed soldiers. Archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, Ai, and other cities that are mentioned in Joshua. So he argues that the main purpose of the conquest was not annihilation, but simply to expel the people out of the promised land, drive the inhabitants out, and to cleanse it from the idolatry, and to destroy and to tear down all the remaining things of the Canaanite religion. That's why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, burn their graven images with fire. This process would have been a gradual process, taking place over time. So the Lord continues, you will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. 
And what we do know is that you get to the end of Joshua's life, there's still many Canaanites that remain or reside in the land and that had not been driven out by Joshua in that movement, but were driven out later by subsequent generations. So Joshua has done all that was expected of him, and yet there's a whole multitude of Canaanites that remain, then it was clear that the, the, the command from God was not to destroy all the people. So we shouldn't take this as literal language, but hyperbolic language. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that God is speaking in terms of the judgment of sin, not just simply displacing a people from a land. Even if there is some exaggeration of language that takes place, there's still no escaping the fact that God is judging the Canaanites for their evil and for their wickedness. Deuteronomy chapter 9 says, It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out. He encourages his people in Leviticus, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all of these nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. When you enter the land, Deuteronomy chapter 18, that the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. There was evil, rampant evil, taking place. Sexual immorality, all kinds of temple prostitutes and the worship of fertility gods. But probably the most evil thing was child sacrifice. God in Leviticus chapter 18 commands his people, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Molech was a Canaanite god. He was represented as an upright, bull-headed idol with a human body. They would build a fire in his belly and they would stoke it hot. And then they placed children in the arms of the statue and they'd be consumed. Literally thousands and thousands of children. Some people say that it wasn't just infants, but children even as old as four that were offered as sacrifices. There was also other child sacrifices that would take place. And so this is true. It becomes clear that God is judging this people for wicked, evil practices. How many of you have ever thought, well, why doesn't God do something about fill in the blank? Why doesn't God do something about sex trafficking? Why doesn't God do something about dictators who destroy people's lives wholesale? Why doesn't God do something about this? Or why doesn't God do something about that? And here God is dealing with the issue of evil where children were sacrificed. And he comes in judgment to deal with sin and we get offended. We get offended. Sin is a serious business. And sometimes when societies sin wholesale like this, there are consequences for men and women and children. We have to ask ourselves, are we complicit in the sins of our nation? We don't sacrifice them to Molech, but we sacrifice children. For comfort, for convenience, for whatever reason we make, whatever excuses we rationalize it. But as a society, we're complicit in this. It brings me no joy to talk about these kinds of things. But it's true about them. And I think it's true about our nation. 
about our, our culture and society. So what would we say to a God who perpetually looked at evil and did nothing about it? We would question his character. We would ask, when will he finally act? What will he do? And then when he finally deals with the issue of evil, we find it difficult to comprehend or acknowledge. But the conquests are not about ethnic cleansing. It's not about genocide. But it's about the issue of evil and of sin. And God is exercising because it's his prerogative as the author of life. Because he's sovereign over all creation to do what he deems is good and wise. To send the nation of Israel as his instrument of justice. To exercise, one writer said, capital punishment on a national scale, paying back hundreds of years of idolatry and unthinkable evil. Here's the thing, though. He does the exact same thing to his people when they rebel. When they adopt these same practices, he exacts the same kind of justice and punishment. God's cleansing the land so that he can establish a place where purity and truth can reign. Why? Because the nation of Israel is going to be the place that all nations will be blessed. The nation of Israel is going to be set out as a nation of priests so that God can see the beauty and the glory and the wisdom of God in contrast with all of these pagan nations around them. God's going to save his people. His plan will not be stopped. This plan of redemption that we saw all the way back in Genesis, it will be accomplished. But it will be accomplished through a war. The Westminster Confession of Faith reminds you and I that when we come to faith in Christ, when we're joined to Him, we are plunged into, it says, a continual and irreconcilable war. While you and I have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we are engaged in a battle. And it will be terrifying. And it will be heartbreaking. But we have to have the courage and the faith and dependence upon God to do battle with the evil one. So keep your head up. Keep your heart and your mind alert. And when you fear, remember that God was faithful in the past. God is faithful in this moment, and God will be faithful in the future. Let's pray.